All right, welcome everybody to the CNS Journal Club podcast. Uh, we have a very special talk today. Uh, we're going to be discussing a paper on the path of surgical robotics and neurosurgery. And this will be uh, coming from the uh, Neurosurgery Journal, uh, the June issue. Uh, so we'll start off by uh, introducing our um, author and guest faculty as well, as well as our resident fellow who will be joining us today. And so our author is coming from Thomas Jefferson University. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my, my name is Goldie Kana. I'm a uh, PGY-5 resident at uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in uh, Philadelphia, uh, primarily interested in uh, cerebrovascular and, and skull-based surgery. Th thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, welcome. It's nice to have you. And uh, as well, our guest faculty is going to be coming from Houston Methodist. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. David Baskin. I'm professor of neurosurgery here at Houston Methodist, also at Wild Cornell College of Medicine. I'm the residency program director, vice chair of the department, and I'm the director of the Brain Tumor Center and do a lot of uh, skull base and, uh, and, and endoscopic, uh, extended endoscopic surgery. Awesome. Yeah, it's really nice to have you join us today. Thank you. Yeah, and then uh, as our resident fellow um, coming from the University of Florida, please introduce yourself. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Megan. I'm uh, like Dr. Vega said. I'm a resident at the University of Florida, and I'm serving as one of the CNS resident um, podcast fellows this year. Yeah, welcome for joining us. So uh, we'll go ahead and get it uh, kicked off. Uh, Dr. Kana, please go ahead and uh, give us a quick uh, rundown. Yeah. Uh, so you know, thank you, Dr. Vega, Dr. Still, and Dr. Baskin for uh, for being here and having me on the podcast. Uh, the article that's topic of uh, today's discussion uh, is uh, entitled the uh, path to surgical robotics and neurosurgery. And it's uh, part one of a four part series in the uh, upcoming volume of uh, operative neurosurgery. Um, this article provides a history of robotics, uh, not just in the field of neurosurgery, but in general surgery as well. We um, uh, start the article by discussing what's probably the best known and most widely used robotic system the Da Vinci robot, um, which is used extensively in general surgery and gynecologic surgery and urology, um, but hasn't gained traction for use in neurosurgery as of yet. Um, we make the distinction that uh, the Da Vinci robot is a, a teleoperator machine, which essentially serves as a, um, an extension of the surgeon's own hand movements, but provides more maneuverability and stability uh, whereas most of the robotic systems that have gained widespread use in neurosurgery are primarily trajectory-based systems um, whose uh, primary purpose is to improve accuracy. Um, the, the current robotic systems that are used in neurosurgery, uh, such as the, uh, the ROSA or the Neuromate, um, are really catered towards improving the uh, speed and accuracy of placing you know, SCEG leads or DBS leads, for example, um, or the Excelsius robot, which is um, used to help improve the accuracy of uh, placing spinal instrumentation. So you know, in this regard, uh, robotics and neurosurgery really is aimed at helping achieve better clinical outcomes with lower rates of morbidity, um, whether it's due to quicker procedural times, the use of smaller incisions you know, with less muscle and soft tissue dissection, or uh, improved accuracy. And you know, there's several different robotic systems that are, that are available and really starting to become really mainstream, certainly in academic neurosurgery, but also in community neurosurgery. And so I think you know, 
uh, robotics are going to continue to play a uh, really prominent role in our field for years and years to come. And uh, further technical advancement will help bring about, you know, more use for them um, into the into the operating room. Thank you for that really, really good overview. I mean, that kind of really sums up kind of the current nature of where we are. And a lot of people are very interested in seeing where we're going to go, you know, and I know talking to a lot of patients, they have a lot of opinions when they think about robotics and neurosurgery, you know, but we'll go ahead and kick off with our guest faculty, Dr. Baskin, you know, if you have any questions for our author, please. Yeah, I do. So first of all, I think the paper's terrific. It's a great review. I think it will uh, help people understand and set the stage for the history of robotic, where it is and where it's going. I have a few questions. I mean, the first is just to, to expand on your comment. So, you know, the Da Vinci and other robots, when people think about robots, when your, your patients think about robots, they're, they're robots that mimic hand movements. So either they're designed because like when you're doing a radical prostatectomy, you know, it's a deep hole where here now you're sitting very comfortably or it's thought that the procedure is such that no matter how good your hands are, maybe the robot's hands are better. And so that's kind of the concept. And, you know, people, uh, we were talking, uh, people won't come for a prostatectomy now uh, if you don't have a da Vinci robot because it's become so widespread that patients really know about it. And as you pointed out, in, in neurosurgery, most of the robots are, are, in a way, a better way to do stereotaxis, right? It's a better way to place a pedicle screw. It's, the Rosa-Robot can certainly be used for placing anything anywhere in the brain. Uh, and so we haven't really shifted to that. The Canadians have that neuro arm, which they've been working on for 10 years. And if you look at their pictures, you can see them with the microscope and the neuro arm and working back and forth. So, I mean, where do you think it's going? And don't, don't you think that, uh, or what do you, do you think that really we should be moving more towards a hand mimicking you know, whether it's telerobotic or just right there, what, what do you think the, what do you think we're going to be going in neurosurgery? What do you think we need? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the, the only, you know, teleoperated uh, robotic system that's been used for neurosurgery is the uh, NeuroArm. And this was first used in the early 2000s in, in Canada. And it was kind of like the Da Vinci where it was an extension of the, the surgeon's hands. And it was actually MRI compatible. So the thought was that you could do, for example, tumor resections uh, while getting real-time uh, MRI imaging to help guide, you know, the next steps of, of treatment. Um, you know, for commercial reasons primarily, that didn't really take off. You know, it's kind of uh, changed hands a few times, and now there's a new company that bought the um, the, the technology for it and is um, working on trying to commercialize it a little bit more. But besides the neural arm, there really hasn't been um, any other robot that um, uh, serves as a extension of a, a surgeon's hand. And as you mentioned, uh, the robotic systems that we primarily use nowadays are really uh, aimed for improved uh, stereotaxy. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of what we need, um, I think using the uh, ROSA robot or the Neuromate robot, for example, really has uh, change the field of functional neurosurgery, where um, the placement of SEEG leads, you know, instead of being a 8-10 hour procedure where the surgeon has to manually reset all the coordinates, um, the robot can do this from preoperative, um, you know, planning and uh, automation. Um, with DBS, for example, more and more 
uh, centers are going towards entirely doing sleep DBS procedures because the imaging technology and the robotic accuracy has just gotten, gotten so good. Um, in terms of where I think we need to go, um, it, it would be nice, and I think certainly there is a uh, uh, the role for telerobotic operated systems. And um, one of the, the places where I think we've already kind of seen this a little bit is in the field of endovascular surgery. So, you know, we at Jefferson have a um, endovascular robot that um, sits in a control room outside the INR suite, and the surgeon sits there and manipulates the uh, machine which has a, a teleoperated hand that works, you know, within the patient and can uh, perform, you know, for example, carotid stents uh, with uh, very good speed and timing and, and safety profile. And when you think about expanding care, for example, um, in the field of, for example, thrombectomies, you know, this could be a game changer where you could, instead of having to transfer a patient down, you know, to Philadelphia from the suburbs, uh, you could put them on a table at a community hospital somewhere and a surgeon could just go into you know, even his or her basement and sit at a robot and potentially do thrombectomies. So I think there is a role uh, for teleoperated systems. Um, and as technology advances more and more, and I think more and more uh, practitioners uh, adopt this into their everyday you know, clinical practice, that um, it'll sort of have the snowball effect where more and more places will incorporate it. So that leads to my other question, which is <clears throat> these things are really expensive. So we've invested in, we also have the endovascular robot. Uh, Gavin Britz, our chair, is very interested in it. He's pushed the field forward. And I mean, they're really cool. We had a course where you could sit there and guide it through a, a pig's vasculature. And, it, you know, I think they're, they're, they're amazing. But these are really expensive. We have seven robots and, you know, we've invested over $12 million in these seven robots. So how do you think this is going to work? How are we going to train residents in, in how to use these machines? I mean, do you, most programs are not going to be able to, most hospitals are not going to be able to invest $12 million. So we're going to have all these robots and all these companies making a better mousetrap. You know, you got, you got Rosa 2 and Rosa 2.5, and, and believe me, it's, it's going to explode. But what's going to happen? I mean, how are you going to get trained? Are only the residents coming from big programs where the hospitals have resource know how to do it? Uh, what are the shortcuts to training? And by the way, if you want to train somebody, do you need another one in the laboratory? So now it's not 12 million, it's 24 million. What do you think about all that? Right. So, you know, I think in terms of um, the, the cost that's associated with, with these uh, robotic systems, you're absolutely right. Th these are not cheap. And any hospital system, I think, is going to be uh, very interested in um, how these costs end up playing out over the long term. So even though a robotic system has a high initial upfront uh, operating cost with subsequent uh, maintenance costs as well to make sure that the, the robot is properly uh, calibrated going forward, um, they wanna see that the return of investment, whether it's five years, 10 years down the line, ends up benefiting the hospital system in, in some meaningful way. And I think you, know, you need that in order to justify uh, buying, these, um, uh, buying these systems. Uh, the second thing that I think is uh, beneficial to a hospital system is, as you mentioned, from a marketing standpoint, um, telling patients that you have a robot, I think, does confer uh, some benefit in terms of them wanting to come to your center over another center that doesn't have it. I think you're absolutely right about the Da Vinci robot that, you know, if patients 
I think it's commonplace now that even patients know about this. And if they look it up online, they'll see that, you know, this is sort of the uh, almost standard of care now for, like you said, radical prostatectomies. And if you don't have that, um, patients, I think, are more inclined to, to go to another center to, to do that. So I think those two things um, uh, together uh, will justify the, uh, uh, the, the cost um, and the impetus for a hospital system to, to purchase these robotic systems. Well, I know, but you know, as the healthcare dollar shrinks, which it inevitably will, we're going to have a dichotomy between an explosion in technology and all these incredible systems, and some right. of them are quite remarkable, and uh, and less money to buy them. And you know, our residency has a rotation in in, in the UK, and and at one of the best places in the UK, and they're all brilliant. But you know. I mean, they'll, they'll do an epidural abscess based on a plain x-ray. And you'll say, wait a minute, how do you know how far up to go? They say, well, we'll start where the lesion is and we won't see any abscess and we're done. So, I mean, you know, when you're in a cost savings uh, environment, it's, it, it's difficult. And right. I think it's a challenge that we all face. There's no easy answer to this. Uh, mainly the question was just to point out the, the, the challenge for the future. I mean, nurse surgery is reinventing itself all the time in many incredible ways. And we can do things now we can never do before but somebody's got to pay for it. And when you say value to the hospital system, it generally means that can they make money on it? So if you have right. a hospital system that's got some money to invest, they can, you can make the art, art marketing argument, you know, but there really are hospitals where to buy another microscope is a major, you know, major act of Congress. So it's an right. issue. Right. Let me let Megan ask some of her questions. I have more, but uh, let, me, let me let you have uh, equal time, if not more. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, and that actually, that conversation leads into one of my questions, which is, um, you mentioned a few times in the paper that there is a fair amount of papers that demonstrate equipoise or non-inferiority in regards to the outcomes of the procedures with the robots and without the robots. Um, and that to me seems like it would be a rather hard sell to kind of talk your hospital and your department into, into moving towards more robotic procedures if that's your outcomes data. Right. Certainly, there's been some that demonstrate, you know, shorter length of stay for the spine surgeries and things like that. But what do you see as the, the data or the, the long-term information that's needed to, to move departments towards using more robotics? Or do you think that that's coming down the pipeline at some point? And also, what surgeries do you see or what kind of fields, you know, like peds or spine or endovascular, do you see it as being the most compelling to use? That's a, it's a really great question. And I think that um, the uh, utility and the uh, safety, um, as well as the uh, outcomes um, from using robotic systems uh, really do vary based on uh, what sort of subspecialty of neurosurgery it's, it's being used for. Um, our institution, you know, Jefferson, we just published a meta-analysis um, in the field of uh, functional neurosurgery saying that uh, whether you use frame or frameless stereotaxy, the um, use of a ro robot uh, confers increased accuracy when it comes to SEEG uh, lead placement. Um, and so I think that uh, for functional neurosurgeons, you know, the robot really has uh, changed their practice in, in, in a remarkable way. And for those that, that have access to the robot, you know, there's, there's no going back. Um, in the field of spine surgery, for example, you're absolutely right, uh, Megan, that um, um, most of the studies that have shown, you know, the performance of, for example, pedicle screw insertion, there is really not inferiority between uh, freehand techniques 
um, possibly even using fluoroscopy uh, versus using uh, robotic systems. Um, there's one study that showed that there was no, there was equipoise between um, robotic use placing pedicle screws and uh, traditional freehand techniques, but it was associated with a shorter length of stay because there's less you know, soft tissue dissection, there's less uh, manipulation of, of tissue, lower blood loss, uh, what, what have you. And so um, I think, you know, for each individual um, area or subspecialty of neurosurgery, the needs are very, very different. And robotic systems have to be designed uniquely for those needs. You know, um, although there are some robotic systems that have both, you know, approval for um, EEG lead placement or DBS placement and spinal neurosurgery, you know, more often what seems to be the trend is that there's a, a specific spine robot that's used for instrumentation. And there's a separate set of robots that are used for, for functional uh, purposes. And I think that the design and um, the, uh, you know, the way it's incorporated into practice is really just varies so much based on what you intend to use it for. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, another one of my questions. So my, one of my personal interests is global neurosurgery and kind of bringing, um, increased access to neurosurgical care to, to patients everywhere in the world and not just in the regions where we have, you know, uh, fancy academic hospitals. And so of course, one of the very first things I hear, or I think about with new technology is, is this going to widen or narrow the practice gap between high income or high resource regions and high and low resource regions. Um, and this can be thought of both, you know, in our country, in high income countries, or, you know, talking about even low income countries in sub-Saharan Africa type places. Uh, you touched on this a little bit when you're saying someone could do this endovascular robotic um, thrombectomy, you know, from home if they couldn't get to the hospital in time. Um, but how do you see this this going forward, do you think this will will help tighten that gap, or do you see it as being more like what Dr. Baskin was saying? We kind of have more and more of the hospitals going. You have the haves and have-nots. Yeah, I, I think you know, uh, like Dr. Baskin was saying, uh, there's probably going to be um, uh, disparities in the uh, availability and use of robotic system even within the United States. So I think more, uh, you know prominent and wealthy hospital residency programs are gonna be the ones that, that I think have the uh, highest chance uh, of purchasing these technologies and training their residents. Uh, whereas other programs that, you know, maybe smaller um, are associated with, you know, hospital systems that maybe aren't as wealthy uh, for whatever reason uh, may not necessarily afford the same type of uh, residency training. And so then the question becomes, you know, do these uh, trainees need to go to um, you know, a fellowship where they can get trained in these technologies is, are there, you know, a stipulated number of courses they have to go uh, to become familiar with this? You know, the learning for these technologies, I think it'd be very hard to justify doing these primarily on patients uh, without having some sort of, you know, either cadaveric or, uh, you know, uh, sort of practice uh, uh, familiarity with, uh, with, with these systems. And um, I think that um, from an international uh, you know, global health standpoint, um, it, it probably would at least initially cause a wider disparity in the uh, resources and the um, uh, 
treatments that are that are available to to, to patients and uh, healthcare providers because um, you know the the costs are just so high with um, these robotic technologies that um, it's going to be very hard for um, most other healthcare systems to, to justify purchasing these. Going forward, though, you know maybe in the long term, um, once more data comes out, and if that data is compelling, that outcomes are you know not just not just show equipoise, but are significantly better with you know robotic systems, um, then I think you know it would create more of a push for um, not just lower third world countries, but even countries like Britain, for example, that Dr. Baskin mentioned that have a nationalized healthcare system, um, you know, I think better outcomes might be the impetus that, that's required in order to incorporate some of these technologies. That leads actually directly into one of my other questions, um, but I'd like to open this up to, to both you and Dr. Raskin, if you don't mind. Um, what do you think of the safety or from, a, like a medical legal standpoint of talking about a future of telesurgery and doing, you know, long distance surgery, either you know, from the home to, again, this could apply to low, low resource settings or distance um, settings. And do you think that's something that the neurosurgery community would ever be able to be on board with? Or do you think there always needs to be some sort of backup and surgeon, you know, in the room, despite the improvement in technology that might allow difference? Well, I mean, if you, I think it's going to depend on the circumstances. So by that, I mean, if you're in a, a, a state where there's not a, not a lot of easy access to a major medical center, and yet this technology is, is, is cheap enough that you could actually be at other places telerobotically, I think we would have to, as an, a neurosurgical community, have to push, well, here, you know, this is something we can offer. You can't really get here in time, so it's better than nothing. And we would have to publish about that. And we would have to say, in many ways, we, you know, the standard of care is the standard that we set, although obviously legal standard of care is a little different than, but not, nonetheless, I think if we, we, if we were interested in, in pushing that sort of thing, then I, I think we could. Uh, it's, quite another issue if you're at a major medical center and then you're doing it from home. No, I don't think you're going to get away from that. I mean, with that, I think that it's kind of like the Da Vinci's. I mean, the Da Vinci's are in the room or near, right nearby. So if something happens, you then come in and you do it uh, directly. Uh, and I, I don't think you're going to be able to argue that that's okay. Well, I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to go outside my backyard and do it. No, I, I think you'd, you'd, you'd want to be in the room or right next door. But I think those are two different circumstances because there are places where using this to extend care will provide care that could not otherwise be given. And that's quite different than, you know, wanting to have one in your bedroom, one in your living room. Yeah. You know, I agree completely. I think um, if you look at, for example, you know, what we think of as quote unquote elective cases. So, for example, you know, spinal instrumentation, um, spine surgery, excuse me. Uh, or even, uh, you know, functional procedures such as DBS uh, placement and uh, SEEG. Um, I think at least initially, um, you would need a surgeon there in person to make sure that there's a um, adequate safety profile uh, while, you know, everyone uh, becomes familiar with the, uh, the technology and the robotic system that, that's, being, that's being used. Um, 
for things that are more, you know, quote unquote, emergent, for example, stroke care, um, being able to expand uh, access to uh, treatment in a uh, more timely manner, I think would probably justify um, being able to do it from, from home. Um, but again, to get to that point, I think you have to have enough practicing uh, surgeons that are comfortable doing it. And, you know, maybe you have to log a certain amount of cases, you know, in the, the control room next door, um, where you can show that this is a, you know, safe procedure with, you know, God forbid something goes wrong, you can just go into the INR suite next door and, and, and rescue uh, the procedure by, by doing it, doing it manually. Um, but it certainly, like you mentioned, uh, Megan, does bring up um, uh, some, some really interesting ethical questions about uh, where we where we go from from here. And um, I think depending on what state you're in, you know, uh, the, the the legal ramifications of incorporating these uh, technologies are, are very very different. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think it brings up a lot of challenging ethical and safety issues, but also certainly broadens out our ability to help people who currently are, are outside of our, of our window of accessibility. I will say having done neurosurgery for many years, that when the stealth first came out, everyone made this argument. Number one, they said, ah, oh, we don't need it. You know, I can hit anywhere in the brain just as well. And there's no way a community hospital is going to buy it. It's way, way too expensive. And, you know, we all believe that, and it was totally wrong. Every community hospital does any neurosurgery has a stealth now. And I, who said that very violently in the past, now if the stealth is broken, I'll cancel the case. So technology drives practice too, as, as time goes by. And I think that's a really good um, example of, you know, what Megan asked is that the, the medical legal ramifications of, uh, what's considered standard of care. So for example, you know, you mentioned uh, with uh, surgical navigation, um, you could probably have a lot of surgeons that can get by without it. Um, but, you know, uh, if something goes wrong, then from a medical legal standpoint, I think you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. And uh, it is interesting how, you know, the, the medical legal aspect of things can, can really drive technological advancement and incorporation of these new technologies into various hospital systems. You know, same thing with shunts, right? I mean, it's like you could do shunts 98% um, of the time with good accuracy, but um, if you have, you know, for example, the Axiom system, for example, or some other sort of uh, surgical uh, neuro navigation system, I think it's hard to justify that that not being the standard of care in this day and age. Nice. Let me ask you one thing that has been curious ever since you guys brought it up a little bit earlier, but how's for David and for Goldie, you know, how is the haptic feedback for these, uh, um, you know, robotic systems? If you're doing like something endovascular when you were doing it with the pigs, for example. Uh, it's, it's not great yet. I mean, it, it's mainly visual. It's really not haptic. I mean, you don't feel more or less resistance as you hit the vessel wall. Uh, you're just looking at it. But the companies are talking about doing it. Um, and it's definitely doable. I mean, the technology is there. 
And so, I mean, uh, one, one company, again, Gavin's been really, government's have been really interested in this, is really literally talking about the haptic feedback. But the ones I've we, we've used don't have the haptic feedback yet. Now, I think the Canadian group has talked about that and <clears throat> has some degree of that. Um, and, you know, of course, the, using the Oculus Rift and that technology, which is a surgical theater, which we have two of, that's another whole thing. I mean, that's visual feedback times 20. I mean, you can actually go inside the brain, turn around, walk around the tumor and look at the back and say, okay, where's the vessel? So that's another whole area. So I, again, I think technology drives, drives improvement ultimately. And I think we're going to see it. Uh, some of these will fall by the wayside. Some of them will kind of seem silly, but uh, I'm glad that they're all showing up even with all the problems we've outlined. I think Dr. Vega, you bring up a good point. And the, I think that the lack of haptic feedback in the available systems is probably the, the main reason, at least in my mind, of why more uh, teleoperated robotic systems have not been developed for, for neurosurgery. Um, you know, the, the robots that are used for spine, um, as well as uh, the ones that we use for uh, functional procedures, really just provide a robotic arm that has, you know, a greater degree of, of freedom and provides more stability to facilitate your own, the surgeon's own movements um, in order to improve accuracy. Um, but the uh, neural arm, I think that was one of its downfalls was that as surgeons were, were working, you know, taking out a glioma uh, within the MRI scanner, that uh, they weren't, you know, privy to having good, a good sense of haptic feedback. And, you know, that's, that's so important in the field of neurosurgery, especially because, you know, you're working in tight spaces uh, with a lot of, you know, surrounding critical structures and having that uh, comfort of, you know, the suction and the bipolar, for example, or the CUSA, what have you, um, I think uh, is, is just so important. That's absolutely critical. I mean, yeah. can you imagine in an endoscopic transphenoidal going into the cavernous sinus, which we do, putting a curette lateral to the carotid, which we do, and then you very gently feel, and you can feel the carotid, you can feel it pulsing and say, okay, I need to pull the curette back and slide it back out. Well, you wouldn't have any of that feedback. You just bring it forward and rip the carotid. So haptic feedback is gonna be needed in many of the cases that we we do, at least in skull-based surgery. Yeah, now I was thinking about that for gliomas, you know, and feeling that last bit that's, you know, very tough right. or, you know, field might be, uh, I, I don't know, just to me, you know, getting the really good resection with some of the traditional methods, you have to have that sense. And that drives a lot of, at least how I practice, you know, we're removing a tumor. Myself also. And so that's, I, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm kind of, that's one of the, probably one of the reasons that it hasn't taken off because at least we believe we need haptic feedback. Maybe there'll be some replacement for that, but right now right. We're, we're very heavily invested that in our own minds. And so yes. we'll be a little hesitant to have a system, however good it is that doesn't have it. That's right. I, I guess you could make the argument for like fluorescent based techniques, right? If you have some 5ALA business and then you're saying, oh, look, I can see the whole resection. This is the last bit of it. If it was really good, but that combination of things over time in the future is kind of what I'm looking forward to. And uh, nevertheless, I guess on that end, you know, we'll just state that uh, uh, this was a great topic and, and I'm glad we had everybody here to discuss it. And so I just want to thank, you know, Dr. Baskin, of course, Dr. Kana and Dr. Still for joining and, and, and really having such a good, lively discussion. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
so I guess that uh, on that note, I'll say, you know, please uh, follow up uh, every month for our uh, CNS Journal Club podcast. And of course, you know, we offer CME that can easily be uh, um, uh, accessed through the uh, website uh, where you can get credit. Um, and we encourage you to do that. And uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, thank you for everybody. And, uh, and, and until the next time.